Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. You know, I said in one of my previous sermons on this series on how to read the Bible, uh, how important context is, and I also said how important it is to remember the word covenant. Now, that may have flown by you whenever I first started this series, but I said covenant is everything. Now, I'm going to go and retrieve that thought, take it off the shelf, so to speak, and I'm going to now enlarge on that thought, covenant. God made a covenant with Israel. The Old Testament, by and large, deals with that very issue. He made a covenant with a special people. He made a different covenant with us. There were laws that went away with, went along with the old covenant, and uh, many, if not most, of those laws have nothing to do with us. It's covenant. And the covenant he made with them had to do with obedience to those laws that he gave. Now, when he makes a new covenant, and the old covenant is done away with, all of the old laws that had nothing to do with ongoing moral issues, in other words, that continuous thread that runs from the beginning of man through now, that are, there's just certain things that have always been right and wrong. Uh, we know that murder from the very beginning has been wrong. So that's not something that passes away because you change covenants, because it's transcendent, it's enduring. It's a truth that goes beyond just any covenant that God might make with people. Even those, those things are reinforced in every covenant. We know we do not lie, we do not cheat, we do not steal, we do not murder. Those are things that are continuous. But in making the new covenant, we're released from much of the regulations of the Old Testament. This is so vitally important because the critics of the Bible do not understand that. If they want to criticize the Bible, if they want to criticize God, one of the first things they'll do is they'll go to the Bible and they'll read some obscure passion, passage from the Old Testament and they'll say something like, and that's the kind of God you serve. They'll read something in there about uh, a command to the, to the Jews that says uh, that if a woman is caught in adultery, she, she ought to be stoned. And then they'll try and and project that into today's age and said, and that's what Christianity is all about, is stoning women. Well, you have to understand that in the context, there were some very severe rules that were made for Israel. It, they were not made for the Gentiles, they were made for Israel. And to the best of scholars' knowledge, they don't know of any cases where those things actually had to be executed. They were warnings, they were boundaries that the Jews stayed within, and we don't have any proof that these things that seem so brutal, so, well, they just went around stoning women all the time. No, they didn't because there were rules against it, because the penalty against it was so severe, and because in a woman that was taken in adultery, there had to be sufficient amount of witnesses to prove that before they could ever execute the judgment. So those are things that never really had to play out. 
that it was sufficiently guarded by having adequate testimony to it and witnesses. So there's a lot of things that goes along with this of people who just want to lift something from the Bible and make a case against Christianity, quite frankly, don't have a clue what they're talking about. And in missing this concept about Old Covenant and New Covenant, when it gets into confusion in Christianity, it becomes an even bigger concern, doesn't it? There, there are churches, there is particularly one denomination that is specifically designed around embracing parts of the Old Covenant as a part of their religion. And you may know people who are in a religion, and there's some, some religions, uh, uh, sects of Christianity, uh, carry some sort of a, uh, a torch for the Old Testament. But there's one particular that, that they're based a lot on whatever the Old Testament says, that's what we have to do, except they're very selective. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, they don't, it's not everything. I, I mean, they might say, well, we have, to, we have to keep the Sabbath. And so they're very, very religious, very legalistic about not working on the Sabbath because the Old Testament had this re- regulation about Resting on the Sabbath. Well, you know, all of you Christians here today, do you realize we've been released from that? Do you realize that ten commandments are given in the Old Testament? Only nine are repeated in the New Testament. Do you realize that? You can find uh, to honor God, honor your parents. You can find do not steal. You can find do not covet. You can find all of these principles because it was uh, largely based on moral principles. You can find them repeated and reestablished in the New Testament. You cannot find in the New Testament, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It's not there. It's not a part of the covenant whatsoever. As a matter of fact, Paul said something totally different from that. He said, you know, some people think about one day above another. Uh, but each man needs to be settled in their own mind. And you know what that really means? It means that we are not putting a holy emphasis on one single day that has to be honored like they did in the Old Testament. We choose Sunday because our culture has made it convenient for us to gather on Sundays. Most people, historically, did not have to work on Sundays, and that's changing dramatically as well. So we chose Sunday. We worship on Sunday. We base that on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there was no rule that said, if you don't worship on Sunday and you choose Monday, that somehow you've, you've broken a law, a moral law, and you're not going to make it to heaven. So we've, we've been released from those things. So you can't be selective in trying to live by the Old Testament. If you're going to live by one law, you're going to have to live by all of them. And that means for you, no more catfish, no more shrimp, no more lobster, that means when you get up in the morning, you had better check your clothing to make sure the tags on there verify that you're not blending any uh, prohibited uh, cloth with linen, with wool, or anything else, because you can't do that, according to Old Testament law, for the children of Israel. But I don't think anybody checked their tags today before they came, did you? You didn't care. I don't either. God doesn't either. But that's the kind of mess we get into when we don't understand how to read the Bible. And we are going to finish the New Testament this month. And some of you probably are going to read the Old Testament if you're not reading it concurrently with this. Just be careful when you're reading that. Remember, you're reading an account of another covenant with another people. And there's certain things about that that we realize just aren't going to apply to us. Now, in the Old Testament, first of all, we do have... I want to deal with the historical narratives. And as I said, in the gospel narratives, the narratives in the book of Acts, they read differently than the epistles. Most of you are getting close to being through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
You should be finishing John in the next few days and getting into Acts. That's more narrative. Then you're going to get into Romans and First and Second Corinthians. You're going to get into the epistles. And you're going to change gears in how you read those things. But if you go back to the Old Testament, it's largely narratives. It's stories. And people read those stories, and some of you are clever enough to understand that these are true accounts. But how many of you understand when I say everything in the Bible is true, but not everything in the Bible is right? Do you understand that, or did that derail you? Everything in the Bible is true. But some things are accounts of things that were very wrong. They're just accounts. doesn't mean when we read it and say it's in the Bible, therefore... It must be right. Sometimes it's morally wrong, but it's recorded as an honest record of what happened. And we have to be able to make that discernment as well. So in the creation, the narrative account of the creation, uh, we, we, do, we have one thing we can point to with clarity. And that is there is a creator as the origin of all things. We believe that. That's, that's a fundamental principle of our Christianity, our religion. There is a creator. He is the origin of all things. But what the Old Testament is not and does not represent itself to be, it's not a science textbook. It never has pretended to be a science textbook, but it brings a lot of confusion when people want it to be a science textbook. Science is going to discover a lot of things that goes contrary to what some Christians have traditionally believed. And we have to assess those case by case as to whether we have been enlightened or whether science is missing it. Now, there are some scientists who will suggest that God is irrelevant because he cannot be scientifically proven. Well, there's a lot of things that can't be scientifically proven. History cannot be scientifically proven because scientifically proven means you have to be able to duplicate something under controlled conditions. And history cannot be duplicated. There's a lot of things that cannot be scientifically proven. Proven. So that a lot of falls into that. But there are things that we believed in the Bible that we thought were true that science reveals and we have to go, well, maybe that wasn't so true after all. But it wasn't that the Bible was wrong. It was that our interpretation of the Bible is wrong. Do you think it's entirely possible through all the ages that people have read the Bible and gotten mistaken notions out of it? I think so. Certainly they have. They have not understood everything that they read. And they've struggled along in trying to bring light on these things. Uh, back in the uh, previous centuries, there, there was a Bishop Usher had suggested by making his own chronology of, of the Bible that he had calculated the earth and everything man was created in 4004 B.C. Not only that, he calculated it uh, to be on uh, a specific day just previous to Sunday in October. I don't know how he got that close. But he really did. That was the day everything was created. So because he set forth this theory of creation in 4004 B.C., people clung to that because they believed that that proved that whenever Adam and Eve were created... uh, about 6,000 years ago, 4,000 years before Christ, 4,004 years and 10 months and a few days, that it upholds the concept of a creator. But then 
as science begins to unfold things, that is, is measuring the age of things that goes far beyond 6,000 years ago. The objection to that, what you've got is you've got a few classes of people. You've got uh, young earth creationists. I abbreviate that YEC, young earth creationists. They believe everything that has happened has happened since 4004 BC. They adhere staunchly to that date. If there's an argument about what about things that are measured as being much older, they said God created them older. Now, really, I, I think I don't buy into that. Personally, I'm not going to get into a, a lot of what you should believe, but I'm just going to tell you real quick, I don't believe that God created things to look like they were old. To me, that sounds like a lie that's being per- perpetuated. I don't really think that's the tack that, Jesus, that God took when he created this. Let's just make it look old and fool everybody. I, I think there are other possibilities in why that is. Then you've got old earth creationists, OEC, and they have different ways of trying to uh, marry the, the uh, account of creation uh, in the Bible with science, uh, far beyond anything I want to get into today. There, but, but then you have uh, theistic evolutionists, that they t- tend to be old earth creationists, and they believe God is the creator, but they also fully embrace the whole process of evolution, that God started it all, but then it just came through the evolution process. And, uh, of course, that's another. Th- it's very popular today. It's another thing that I, I don't personally embrace. But the thing about it is there's a lot of theories on how to bring this together. And in, fa- in not knowing how to read the Bible, people go back and they read the Bible and say, well, Bishop Usher says, according to the genealogies that he's put together, it had to be 6,000 years ago. Then they are dismissing other possibilities Possibilities extend from, was it really literally six 24-hour days in which he created it, or was it not? They debate that. Uh, Personally, I don't have a problem with God doing it in six 24-hour days. But the debate goes on in trying to resolve the conflict between what science is discovering and what we think the Bible says. Uh, And then others that say that... It was a long time ago in the distant past, in the beginning. We don't know when the beginning was. It was ages and ages and ages ago that God created the heavens and the earth. But there was a gap of time. It's commonly called a gap theory, and some adhere to that. I don't say this to confuse you. I say this to, to, to bring this point about that we cannot just get stuck in one mode because we think the Bible says something and, and then discover that, well, wait a minute, the Bible wasn't intended to be a book on science. Science is science. Sometimes it's good science, sometimes it's bad science. Just like sometimes there's good interpretation of Scripture, sometimes there's bad interpretation of Scripture. But you can read the Bible, and you can read creation, and you can come away with one thing that is indisputable. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is no doubt about that. We believe in a creator. We believe in him as the source and origin of all things. Then you move from Genesis and you go through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the five first books of the Bible are a set, a special set all themselves. And basically they deal with the origins of Israel, not only the creation, but the origins of Israel and uh, how they came to be birthed as a nation, how God gave them a promise, and how they came to actually receive that promise. That's in those five books. And then after that, you get into the narratives of the Old Testament that has a lot to do with following the history of Israel. As they, most of you are acquainted, they served God, then they grew 
cold against God. And they rebelled against God. And then they went into captivity and they cried out to God. Now, if you want to look at that in a kind of a personal, applicable way, it's kind of the way people do sometimes. God has always been a very popular port in the time of storm. We don't need him so much when life's going our way, but when we're in trouble, we begin to wonder, I wonder if there really is a God, and if there is, would he be interested in helping me? Until somehow we manage to get through our crises, and then we decide, no, there isn't any God, because he will interfere with my lifestyle. Therefore, it's convenient for me not to believe there's a God until maybe I need him again, then I'll reconsider the situation. Well, we see that in the episodes of Israel, uh, in their ebb and flow of hot for God and cold for God, living for God and loving him and then deserting him, going into bondage and, and getting spanked and then coming out and being more humble towards God and getting in a long succession of kings that just continue to get worse and worse and worse with every generation and leading them astray. And you read this whole narrative, it's just about Israel. But you know, in reading these narratives, there's very little that you personally can get out of it as a personal promise to you. What you can do is get an understanding of the nature of God, an understanding of his interaction with the special people he had called. But you're not going to find a lot of promises in there that says, well, this must be for me. It might inspire you to know that God could do that for Israel. And you say, I have a God that can part Red Seas. I have a God that can part the River Jordan. But don't think you can go out here by the Mississippi and smite it with a staff and God's going to do that for you. There's a difference between God, what God can do and what he actually is going to do for you. So you can't take it all and say, well, he did that. He has to do this for me. We have to be cautious in the application. But we can appreciate what it teaches us about God. In the Exodus, we have these three parts, the deliverance of the Jews, the return of the presence of God to distinguish his people from the rest of the world, and the establishment of the company of Israel as a people of God and as a nation. Then in Joshua through Malachi, we have the, the, the history, the narratives, and we have a lot of prophets in there that are bringing prophecies against Israel and uh, the major prophets, the minor prophets, and they are sent by God to call Israel back to God. A few of those prophets threw some prophecies in there that had to do with the coming Messiah and uh, with events that are yet future for us. And Jesus pointed out some of those prophecies as they were just, the prophets were just speaking to their people. But all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it just seemed like a bolt out of the blue that, uh, you know, there's going to be a son born unto a a virgin and his name should be called Emmanuel. And, And it's like the prophet may have said, what was that all about? Why did I say that? Or maybe he understood, but I would say most of the time they didn't understand their own prophecies, but they gave them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And sown in those prophecies are a few things that are of great interest to us. All of them are of great interest to Israel because they were calling Israel back from their rebelliousness. Now let's deal with the laws that were given. When the, the word law is used in the, in the Bible in several different ways. It doesn't mean the same thing every time it's used. Sometimes when it's referring to the law, it's referring to the entirety of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Sometimes when it uses the word law, it's referring just to the Ten Commandments. Sometimes when it refers to the law, 
It might be referring to the expanded law that, uh, that, that the Jews took and wrote their own commandments. They thought if God's in the business of writing commandments, he must like commandments. Let's add a few. And oh, it grew. And they had, they had six or seven hundred commandments that they had written to add to God's commandment. Then one man came to Jesus and said, by the way, master, teacher, which of these commandments that we wrote do you think is your favorite one? He was really fishing for a compliment for all those ages in which they just kept writing commandments and writing commandments, and Jesus, so frustrated with all this legalism they had created for themselves, swept it all aside. He said, let me give my answer to this. Love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if there's any other commandment like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On this hang all the law and the prophets, and forget about all that other garbage. It's so simple today. I don't have a list of do's and don'ts for you. If you want to get into following Jesus, the Holy Spirit's going to work on your life. He's going to teach you what he wants you to do and what he does not want you to do. I am not your Holy Spirit. If you want me to walk with you, I'll remind you what the Holy Spirit tells us. But if you don't want me to walk with you, I'm not going to come and tell you what you ought to be doing. God's going to have to work in your life or it's not going to be for any good anyway. You can't just do it because I said so. If you want to walk with God, he'll teach you. But if you want to get started with God and you're intimidated by saying, I just don't know if I can do this Christianity. Let me boil it down. Just love God and just love your neighbor. That's all God wants out of you. He'll take care of the rest as you grow in him. It's so simple. Let's get started. What's wrong with that? What is so difficult about it? Sometimes we make things too difficult. You remember the story of Naaman uh, who was uh, commanded to go wash in the Jordan River in order to be cleansed and healed from his leprosy? And he made a big stink out of it. You know, I'm an important man. Why should I go wash in the muddy Jordan? Why all this? You can just speak the word and heal me. And I want all this not. And finally the prophet says... What is so hard about wash and be clean? You just got to get down to build. What is so hard? You're making this too difficult. I don't think I can live for Jesus. What is so hard about saying I accept the gift of eternal life for myself? What is so hard about this? And I'm going to do my best to honor and serve him in return for that gift. This is not rocket science. It just simply... Acknowledging Jesus Christ is Lord. He'll take care of the rest. I promise you he will. So they had civil laws. They had ceremonial laws. And they had moral laws. The civil laws have nothing to do with you. Don't get hung up in the civil laws. If you read things in the Old Testament, having to do with your garments and having to do with your hair and having to do with what... That's not yours. It just isn't. It was for Israel. You know, in Israel, uh, God commanded the men uh, about the trimming of their sideburns and their beards. You know why? Because he made rules to make sure that physically his people had a separate, distinct, identifiable appearance different from the rest of the world. You could tell like that, his people. The way they dressed, the way they groomed themselves, that's the only reason he did that. He wanted them to have a distinction, and when they would see that, when they would do those things, it would remind them they are a set-apart people. You have no business saying, well, God wants me to trim my sideburns so-and-so, and wants me to do this to my beard. God wasn't talking to you. You don't need that monkey on your back. You really don't. 
Let's be free from those things. The ceremonial laws, the civil laws that have to do with what I mentioned about how, how uh, punishment was carried out, that wasn't for you. That was for Israel. The moral laws, that's for you. The same moral laws that applied to them applied before there was a law, before there was a nation of Israel, apply now today. These are the moral laws that extend straight through. Those are for you. I think I've covered the prophets. No, let me, let me cover a little bit more about the prophets as I move on. Prophets spoke as the mouthpiece of God. And there were Old Testament prophets, prophecies that were pronouncements of blessings and then sometimes pronouncements of judgments on Israel based on what was applicable for the moment, their position before God. But you know what we do as modern-day Christians, and it's, it's one of our faults, it's one of our failures, is we read the Old Testament prophecies in part lifted out of context and then we think that it's either a broad promise or a broad judgment for us. Rest assured, God was not speaking to the church when he spoke to Israel through the Old Testament prophets. He was speaking to the Old Testament prophets. And I'm going to give you an example. I could give you an example that might embarrass you, but I don't want to do that this morning. I'll give an example that embarrasses me. At least ministers, okay? It's embarrassing to have to admit that sometimes pastors are just as guilty as lay people in misapplying Scripture. Especially when we can do it to our advantage. Here's a prime example. Have you ever known of a pastor, and you probably have, don't lift your hand, (laughs) or an evangelist or a minister who in order to protect themselves from critics and from opponents would pull out this ace. Touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm. In other words, lay off me or God's going to beat you up because I am his anointed. And that is a sorry excuse for shielding ourselves from criticisms. Because God did not have me in mind when he said that. He didn't have modern day church pastors in mind when he said, touch not mine anointed. You read it in context. It was a warning against the enemies, not to come against Israel. That's my chosen. Don't you touch Israel. I'll, I'll take care of them. They got problems. I'll take care of them. And isn't it, isn't it interesting how we can go back and lift that out of context and use it as a weapon to beat people with? You want to come get mean with me and you get me cornered? I'm going to whip out, don't touch God's anointed. And I'm giving you fair warning now, if I do that, don't believe me. It's not fair. And I, I, I poke fun at myself and I, I honestly don't believe I've ever really used that. I don't think I have. Lord, bring to memory if I'm wrong. But I don't think that's, that's been something that I've tried to protect myself with, but I've known many that have. But what about you as laity? I'm just giving this as an example when sometimes we go back to the Old Testament and pull out a scripture and we use that as a lever when it really wasn't for you at all. Just be very, very cautious about how we use the word. Handling the word is a responsibility. Mishandling the word 
is something that we'll be judged for. Let us not mishandle the word of God. Let's move to the Psalms real quick. One of the most beautiful and treasured parts of the entire Bible is that section called the Psalms. These are songs, these are poems written by people who were, who were uh, singing praises to God. Uh, well, they were doing a lot of things. So let, uh, let me just get into what they were really doing here. One of the biggest problems we have in reading Psalms, and I, I think this is going to surprise you because everybody here probably says, what is so hard about reading Psalms? Just read Psalms. Let me give you some hints. One of the problems that we most commonly make in reading the Psalms is we approach it thinking this is a word from God to us. The Psalms were a word from man to God. They were inspired, but they you read the Psalms. These are people talking to God. And when you approach Psalms with that understanding that this is not God talking to you, This is people that are talking to God. You know what they talk to him about? If you can quickly summarize your experience in reading the Psalms, you'll come up with this. Sometimes they talk to him about how wonderful he was. Sometimes they talk to him about how rotten life was. You ever remember reading those Psalms? There are different kinds of Psalms. Let me give you this quote. These words that are from man, spoken about God, spoken to God, the purpose of the Psalms has never been to teach doctrine or moral behavior. We don't get that largely out of the Psalms. The more prominent purpose is to demonstrate ways in which we can express to God, and I quote Gordon Fee, our joys and sorrows, our successes and our failures, our hopes and our regrets. That's what Psalms is for. If we don't keep that perspective, we get horribly confused reading the Psalms. And let me give you another example. The 137th Psalm, the writer suggests that Babylonian babies should be dashed against the rocks. Now, if we were not to keep, be very cautious in reading that, we'd be in trouble for carrying out that kind of a thing. That's why opening your Bible and randomly letting it fall open and pointing and reading and say, this is my word for the day, can be very dangerous and non-productive. There are types of psalms. There are praise psalms. And praise psalms follow a particular pattern in their construct. They have, in the praise psalms, always an introduction, and they're not always in this order, but they have these elements. They have an introduction. They have a a description of distress. They have an appeal to God. They have a deliverance, and they have a testimony. Those are all the way that praise psalms are built. Then there are lament psalms, and they also have a particular construct. They have an address, a complaint, a trust, a deliverance, an assurance, and a praise. Then there are are what we call imprecatory psalms, and they are expressing sadness, sometimes anger, 
sometimes these psalms teach us how to deal with our anger and our deep hurts and our pain. Now that's something you can take home with you today because some of you people have had deep anger and you've had pain and you've had sorrow and you've had hurt. I want you to go to the psalms and read the imprecatory psalms and see people who felt just like you a long time ago and see what they wrote and how they came to manage that and process that in their life. Let me go back to the 137th Psalm. Let me read that quickly for you. Now, if you would read that in, oh, let's say the NIV, you would probably find that written in, in kind of a poem fashion. There's a, there's a sentence and then there's a sentence underneath of it because these are written in sets and thoughts. You don't always see it in the English, but in the original language, these people were writing songs and they were writing poems. Not, not the kind of poems that rhyme, Roses are red, violets are blue. But the kind of poems that had a rhythm to them. Oftentimes that rhythm meant that they would start with a thought and then they would reword that thought in the next verse and say exactly the same thing except to make it poetry. They just used different words to say the same thing. And we get all bogged down and say, now what did he mean when he said this, but he said that there? I don't see the difference. Of course, there wasn't any difference. It was a style of writing. He says, I want to express my way different ways to bring out the point. So that's the reason sometimes you see that repetition of thought. Let me read this. The psalmist says, How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear down its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Now, once again, I say, who's going to read that and think that's a great idea? But who hasn't been so mad sometimes, so angry sometimes, that you said something just as caustic? Let me give you an example. I had some dear friends in one of my previous churches that they were going through such a terrible, rough time in their life. Their oldest son had graduated high school and left home and just went crazy, just flipped out, and began to rebel against his parents and do the the weirdest off-the-wall things, ended up moving in with a married woman who had a child who had separated from her husband. And going from high school into this situation, it just grieved the parents so deeply. And the son snuck back home with his key and would break into the house when they were gone and he would get things out of the house he figured belonged to him. That was a television sitting in my bedroom. I'm going to take that television. You know, whatever he wanted. And it was just breaking their heart. It hadn't been long ago they were on a good and good relationship with this young man and suddenly he's just gone crazy his looks just went to pieces he, every, he picked up habits he never had before living with this woman we gathered around with this couple my wife and I and we said, I said we're going to pray and I may have said it's a little difficult for me to remember the entire thing there's Parts that I remember, but I may have said something, God, you know, do whatever it takes to bring him home. And I remember the father prayed and he said, 
We're holding hands. He said, kill them, Lord, kill them all. And I still am praying. I haven't broken stride. And I'm praying and said, we're not going to do that. You don't have to get out of character to rebuke somebody. Have you ever been so mad, so angry? You said some things like that. Like, Lord, we ought to, we ought to just, would you just kill all the babies in Babylon? It make me feel a whole lot better about this, this uh, bondage, this captivity that we're in. Just do something to hurt them. You see, the people who wrote the Psalms were real people. They had real pain. And they made their own real mistakes. And we read that. And we identify with it. But how does he get his way through it? How does he work his way through that point where he's so low that he's saying uh, just ridiculous things? That's why you read those psalms trying to find out how people like you and me cried out to God and found their way through it. The final point, and I'm done this morning, is when you're reading the psalms, avoid trying to find doctrinal points from a single passage in Psalm. Those psalmists were not writing doctrine. They were crying out to God. Sometimes they were a little bit off base in what they said. But somehow there was something redeemable in what they wrote to bring them back to, nevertheless, God, you're bigger than my circumstances. Forgive me of my failures. They, they found that way of getting back to God. But you can't go to the Psalms and start saying, well, now there's doctrine here. I will give you another example. When the psalmist said, in sin, my mother conceived me, it's so easy to take that and try to make, prove some sort of a doctrine about being born sinners. And I can promise you that the psalmist was not trying to make a doctrine out of that because we have the doctrine, uh, we have people who have different beliefs about whether we are born sinners or whether we are just born with a sin nature and Personally, I, I can cut to the chase this morning. I don't believe you were born a sinner. I believe with all my heart you were born with a sinful nature. You will not be judged for Adam's sin, but you'll be judged for what you have done. You've been judged with a broken nature, a nature that wants to do wrong more than it wants to do right. You were born like that. Eventually, given enough time, you're going to fail because... We know the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I might be your pastor here this morning, but I have failed. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's why I need a Savior, because I was born with the tendency to do wrong, and I need God's help to overcome that tendency to, wrong, to do wrong and give me the motive and the strength, the power to be able to do right when I want to do wrong. I need God for that. I cannot do that on my own. By my nature, I am doomed to fail. By the blood of Jesus Christ, I can be forgiven. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I can overcome that sinful nature and I can live for God. But you can't make a doctrine out of some simple little thing that the psalmist said. Let me give you another thing that we do sometimes uh, with the psalms. There was a psalm that said that man's days would be Three score and ten, and if by means of God's grace, his mercy, his favor, you might get four score. Now, those of you who know the antiquated language know I'm talking 70. Three score and ten is 70. Four score is 80. And people have read that. 
I've even heard it at funerals. The Bible says that we have 70 or 80 years to live. Well, all you have to do is think on your own experiences in life to realize that was not something that the psalmist was trying to say we've been guaranteed. Friend, I cannot guarantee you 70 or 80 years. I've done funerals for young people. We've known and had friends to have babies to die. Where, where's the promise of God? If we're given 70 or 80 years, what kind of mockery is this? Who gets it and who doesn't? That's not what the psalmist was saying. You know what he was really saying? Most likely, I know there's a couple of theories on it, he was either just using a very loose expression to say, hey, we, just, we lived for a while and nothing's guaranteed, but he goes on. But really, I think the better explanation is, is rather than just being a generic shoot-from-the-hip statement, is really he was writing about the time of the children of Israel in the wilderness where God very definitely said, I'm not going to let anybody live to be older, old enough that, to come out of the wilderness if you're a rebel. I'm going to introduce an entirely new generation. Everybody who goes into this 40 years wandering is going to die by the time they're 80 years old. So if you're 79, you've got one year left to live. You know why? Because they were rebellious, they were doubtful, they, they, they disbelieved God, and he said, I'm done. I'm going to spend 40 years growing a new generation, and the new generation is not going to have the habits and the doubts and the fears of the old generation. I'm going to... So he, when the psalmist is referring to you, you've got 70 or 80 years at the most, and then I'm getting rid of this crowd. I'm bringing out a new congregation. Now, you put that in context, and it keeps you from having to make clumsy explanations for why the Bible guarantees us 70 or 80 years, but we've got some of you here that are enjoying much more than that. Aren't you glad that that wasn't a fixed promise? Those of you who have exceeded 80 years, God didn't just cut you off because it's too bad. The psalmist wrote it. Now I've got to do it. We'll continue next week as we learn some interesting things about how to read the, read the wisdom literature. But I hope as you read your Bible through, read your New Testament, we've already dealt, dealt with that, but get into the Old Testament, get into the Psalms. You just identify with the writers, and when they're praising God, you're praising God with them. Whenever you're, they're, they're struggling with their own personal issues, you say, yeah, I've been there. I kinda, let's see how this man deals with it. That these are people, real people, talking to God about real problems and real situations in life. That's just like you and me, isn't it? Would you bow your heads?